Some of the responses I remember had to do with the fact they thought it was too self-confident. Someone like me from a background like mine doing Shakespeare was outrageous. It's just clever, but again, not in a sort of, not in a way that bangs you over the head with it. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, subtly clever. Exactly. I felt that I was working in service of them, and I felt that my goal for them was to do justice to their lives. More than kisses, letters mingle souls. Welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Elena Lapin, and our guests today are three exceptional debut novelists, Preti Tanija, Helen Cullen, and Fatima Farheen Mirza. We'll be talking about family secrets and other unrelated stories. Enjoy. It's not about land, it's about money. He whispers his mantra as the world drops away, swinging like a pendulum around the plain. The glittering ribbon of the Thames, the official stamps of the royal parks, a bald white dome spiked with a yellow crown, are swallowed by summer's deep twilight. The plain lifts, the clouds quilt beneath it, tucking England into bed to dream of better times. It is still yesterday, according to his watch. He winds the dial forwards. Now it is tomorrow, only eight hours to go. He's landed the window seat with a broken touchscreen. It's either in-flight information or Slumdog Millionaire, the last movie he ever took Ma to. They went on release weekend. The entire line of people had been brown, so for once Ma didn't hunch in his shadow as if his jeans and camel coat could protect her, explain her. Instead, they had the same old fight about Iris, and as he bought toffee popcorn she began to sniff. She said she was catching a chill. She kept up the sniffing as the credits rolled over the entire cast line dancing on the set of an Indian train station. When they got outside, he thought she'd been crying. He put his arms around her. Her head was the perfect place for his chin to rest. He asked her if she liked the movie. She said she didn't at all. It was not real India, except for the songs. I'm Preeti Teneja and I'm the author of We That Are Young, which is published by Gallybega Press. And it's a contemporary Indian novel which takes Shakespeare's King Lear and sets that play in New Delhi and in Kashmir. Preeti Taneja, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. A real pleasure to have you here. I have just finished reading this book, We That Are Young. It is a so-called doorstopper of a book, but I think it's a heart and mind stopper of a book. It is a monumentally brilliant novel. King Lear, set in contemporary India, that is, of course, what it is. But it is also other, there are other ingredients that I'd love to talk to you about. I would love to know, to begin with, where were you raised and your connection to India, to New Delhi, where the novel takes place? What is that exactly? My parents emigrated from New Delhi um, to the UK in 1968. And I was born in Hertfordshire, in a very small town, um, not far from London, about 40 miles. But it felt like a world away from, from the city. Like a lot of second-generation young people who come from, I suppose, young professional families, middle-class, modest middle-class families, um, we went back to India for many, many, many of our school holidays. So Christmas holidays, Easter holidays, summer holidays. We were in India um, growing up alongside our friends and cousins and the, and the children of our parents' friends. Um, so I sort of had this double existence. That classic experience of never feeling quite at home in either place, it took a long time for me to decide how I was going to negotiate that. And for me, this book is that negotiation because it brings together a very classical English education in school in the UK with stuff full of Shakespeare, including King Lear, and the language, the cultures of my parents' homeland, which were part of who I who I was. And for me, I don't have that kind of immigrant schizophrenia, which is so popularly talked about as the sort of problem. I see my identity as whole and navigating different worlds. 
So Shakespeare, the universal appeal of Shakespeare's uh, plays is something that I think you've written about before or talked about before. You discovered King Lear in high school. And was it immediately something that you related to in a very strong way? Absolutely. I had an incredible English teacher who broke down, showed me how to break down the language of the play and understand how clever it was, how multifaceted it was. And it's really at that level of language that this play completely inflamed my imagination, where I could understand that every character could say something to another character. And on the surface, it seemed like it meant one thing. But when you really look at the words, they're saying something very, very different mm. that might be misconstrued, that might be a real expression of what they actually feel. And it can be interpreted in lots of different ways. So that was very exciting for me. It really enlightened my brain in a way. It switched me on um, to the power of language to stick it to the man, I suppose. <laughs> and then starting with that, and then suddenly as well, there was this sense that here was a very traditional family in which the daughters were sort of made to perform for honour. Now, you know, every family is different, but the kinds of pressures that parents put on their children are often quite similar. And certainly in, in the Indian family, the pressure to be good and to prove one's honour for the, for the sake of family name is not was not alien to me. So, you know, coming downstairs at a party and reciting your 13 times table or something like that to show how you'd been learning or whatever. I mean, I laugh about it now, but it was excruciating at the time. And so that was one thing, this kind of relationship between fathers and daughters that was in the play, which really, really spoke to me. And then there was this sense of this kingdom being divided, which really very much resonated for me because we do not learn empire history and partition history in the UK education system. But I was learning about it at home, you know. By the time I was 17, I had read a number of novels that had come out, at that, you know, through the years um, after partition by Indian writers. I'd heard from my aunts, I'd heard from my mother about this policy of divide and rule. I'd heard the kind of legacy that my parents had come to England off the back of the reason why I had been born in the UK. And when you're growing up, you know, this thing about sort of all this migration of people and the violence and the kind of drawing of a line arbitrarily by a man who never had gone to that region, who was white, that it sounds a sort of like science fiction. It was never talked about in school. So there's this disconnect between the reason why we are born in this country as Asians and then what we see around us as normal and suddenly here we were in the classroom canonical text the centre of English literature and there it is mm. partition of a kingdom done by a father who's making his daughters compete with each other in much the same way as divide and rule policy worked mm. sort of saying you tell me how much you love me and I'll give you this piece of land and these kind of intricate connections started fusing for me and I was thinking wow I completely get this. It's a very personal um, narrative but it's also a very very political one and the way they merge is um, really truly brilliantly done. Um, now, this is set in contemporary India. When I say contemporary, you actually name a date, 2012. Um, this is New Delhi, 2012. So Jivan is returning to India after the very recent death of his mother. His stepfather is already dead, um, but his father is in India. Now, he's been away from home from India for 15 years having had a Harvard um, education and a good sort of middle-class life in Massachusetts in the United States. He's returning to India and he's expecting some kind of welcome, major welcome. What exactly is he expecting and what actually happens? He's expecting people to be impressed by his westernization, if you like. He's coming with the trappings of what he considers civilization. And he's going back to a place which he remembers as being, you know, not as developed, if you like. He's in for a big shock. 
because in the 15 years since he's left, the whole of the Indian economy has opened up and socialism mm. and, uh, in, in name has, has changed into a kind of hungry capitalism. You know, a feudal structure is giving way to a very corporate one. And all of these mix of things have meant that when he gets home, what he considers to be home, it's completely unrecognisable. And things that he was expecting to find quaint are now just distant memories in the milieu in which he's now moving, which is incredibly wealthy. It is, you know, click your fingers and anything you want will appear. But the family that he's connected with is uh, one of the most powerful families in India. Um, What sort of power do they actually have? It's hard to know because they are so wealthy um, and so powerful that one could imagine that they have influence in media, in politics, in industry. Um, they have influence in communications and just in the, I will use the metaphor, fabric of social life. And fabric is very important in this novel because of um, part of their fortune comes from this idea of the Kashmir shawl, which is, again, mm. slightly politicised or very politicised in the book mm. as a symbol of majesty and also of occupation. Yeah. Well, I don't know what he's expecting at this point. He's expecting some sort of homecoming. But in fact, he's being offered a job. But as he's observing what is actually going on there, it is staggering to see that this family within its own compound, which is both, you know, business and family life in one, almost, um, they have the kind of security that, you know, you would expect from the KGB. They have <laughs> screens where they can observe what everyone is doing at mm. any given moment. Um, that is fascinating to me. Um, is this something that has any sort of abstract connection at all to, to the King Lear universe? Well, Surveillance culture and being looked at um, is so endemic to our contemporary life. But it's interesting that you pick up on that idea from Lear. What I really wanted to do with the surveillance and the kind of videos is, is reference two things. Firstly, that theme in the play of whether or not we can actually see things as they are mm. um, and how we do that and who does that and what kind of gaze can be objective if a gaze ever can be. But also... That sense that I have very much as a woman in India and in Indian society that one is always under surveillance for one's body, behaviour, what we say, how we behave in company. You go out on the street and there's a sort of blank gaze. It is a very sort of low-level aggression that comes with that kind of surveillance and that's what I was trying to capture in the book. The most, I think the most fascinating character is his half-brother, Jeet, who is nothing like what he seems. He, he is so completely misleading on every level. Mm-hmm. He misleads the family. He misleads every member of the family. He misleads uh, the reader. Yeah. I don't know if he misled you, if you were having fun playing with him <laughs> as a character. I think that Edgar is one of Shakespeare's most tricky villains and difficult characters to pin down and I really wanted to capture that ambivalence Mm. in this book with this character Jeep and in some ways he is the only character who has a really who has a lot true love with another person it's a man he's an incredibly complex young man who at the same time as having this love is just trying to fight for his own sense of supremacy and tapping into something very dangerous in Indian society which has risen and risen and risen since this book came out or I started writing um, the rise of religious right-wing fundamentalism and violence against minorities a kind of politicized Hindutva, as they call it, which is one of the reasons why the book is bright orange. And Jeet, even though he is brought up as a Sikh, has this sort of yearning to be a god. Mm. And he knows his yoga. He not just poses, but he knows the kind of yoga Mm. philosophy. He's a Sanskrit reader. He's a scholar. He understands the Vedas, the sacred texts and the Mahabharata. And this book isn't just Lear. It is a huge amount entwined with the Indian ancient texts. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, when Jeet leaves his very, very wealthy lifestyle, 
and goes to live in this slum, he starts to organise, he brings with him a kind of capitalism and a kind of religious fundamentalism. He he begins to organise this slum um, in minority groups, setting each against each other, mm. monetizing the water system. He's a little, he's making a kingdom basically. Mm. And of course, at the end, he inherits everything. Everything, <laughs> everything in fact. <laughs> Given the um, enormously, you know, beautiful, powerful, and I think unique quality of this novel, I was surprised to hear how long it took you to find a publisher. Um, and so a big shout out really to Galley Beggar Press for publishing um, your fantastic debut. Um, and I would love to know how, when when you first started offering it to publishers, were the responses fearful of the scope of it or what exactly was the reason why it took a while to find a publisher? Well, and I really like... Um... I'm really enjoying this conversation and I think it's important because um, you've read, obviously read the book so so closely and, and really warm to it and it means the world to me to hear you talk about it in this way because it's difficult now to think over that time with any kind of objectivity. When I remember some of the responses I was getting, I tried to work out in my own mind, was it because the draft wasn't ready and I think... I've seen things published which are much more undercooked than my first draft was when it went on submission. Fine. It just didn't find the right editor a number of times mm. in London publishing. Mm. In fact, a lot of times. And now I have a bit of perspective on it. And I just think, you know, I've never talked about this to anyone because I don't think it's good form necessarily to sort of like say, oh, this person said this or this person said that. But I think it I think it's sort of time and it's helpful for people to hear. Yeah. Some of the responses I remember had to do with the fact they thought it was too self-confident, mm -hmm. too ambitious, that someone like me from a background like mine doing Shakespeare was outrageous. Some so people just didn't like the way India was being depicted and those were the those were Indian guys. <laughs> mm. Well, so, there are so many self, ways I'm self-confidence <laughs> and and this sort of free quality of this novel and ambition and the truth in it and the poetry in it is why I think we need this book. Thank you very much for having written it, for having persevered, and it's a truly inspirational novel as well. Pretty Taneja, thank you very much for this conversation, for love reading. Thank you. Lucy's Goals, welcome to our newest book post, your book post, actually. And this time, I understand we'll be talking about short stories. Yes, that's right. I've picked three collections of short stories that are all recently published. The first one from the end of June, one from August and one from the beginning of September. And what are they? Well, the first one I want to talk about is a collection called Things to Make and Break by an author called Meilan Tan. Um, and this came out in uh, June, published by SAPTA. And it's a really interesting collection by a young author who I suspect we'll be hearing quite a lot more about in the future. Um, she's a British Chinese writer um, who was born in Hong Kong. Though I think her family originally emigrated there from Indonesia. And she spent time living in California before studying in London, and she now lives in Berlin. And this gives her stories in this collection a really international flavour, which I think is quite um, quite rare to find. Like a lot of the, and particularly the other two short stories collections I'm going to be talking about, are very American in their focus. Mm -hmm. So it's been quite interesting to read something that's a bit different. Um, Mayland's stories are sort of, they're about characters who seem to be searching for connections. Um, they are... They sort of vary in length. I found myself more drawn to some of the longer stories. I think that I tend to 
as much as I can admire some of the writing in shorter stories that is more atmospheric and um, sort of doing something different with language, I do like a little bit of plot to my short stories, I must admit. Um, so I found some of her longer offerings um, the more um, interesting for that. But I think what struck me about this book in particular was the way that she seems to use the figure of the double throughout on many occasions. Um, there's a wonderful story about an actress who falls in love with her stunt double. Um, there is a great story in which two um, teenage twin boys are in love with the same girl. So it's obviously something that she's very interested in. What do you think is behind this interest or I'm, fascination with doubles? I don't know. I'm honestly not sure. From this collection, I think that she... I think there's obviously a lot of... Uh, maybe there's something to do with identity. Um, mm. Maybe it's also just a really... I don't know, in one sense, it's just a really neat way of writing these kind of pieces. I think with short stories, one has to be very careful that you don't want them to become... You don't want them to feel too much like fragments that are from a larger whole and need kind of more elaboration or explication. But you also don't want them to feel sort of too, un, you know, unfinished or, or kind of too perfect in themselves as well, I think. Um, and by having these sort of neat structures or these uh, something that kind of, I think, can keep you focused in the moment mm. of the story is really useful. Maybe, as you said, identity is a factor because moving from country to country, culture to culture, yes, having something of a double identity as a result, having to reinvent yourself exactly. more or less, might play a role in that. It might do. I'm always a bit dubious about trying to impose too much of the author onto mm. their fictional work, especially if you don't know, you know an awful lot and I don't know the author personally. Mm. So, But I'd be very interested in... Actually, I'm doing an event with her in a couple of weeks, so maybe it's something well, I'll be able to ask her about. Where will that be? <laughs> At Waterstones Gower Street. Wonderful. So, yeah. Um, and what's your next one? Well, the next one is actually the title that's being published in September. But I want to talk about that before the August one, because I think that it has quite a few connections with um, Things to Make and Break. So the second book is a collection called Certain American States by the American writer Catherine Lacey, and it's being published by Granta. Um and this reminded me in part, I mean, I read the two collections fairly close together, so that might have something to do with it. But I found that there were quite a few similarities between them in that Certain American States is a, a series of stories that, again, are about characters who seem to be looking for something, looking for maybe not so much connections, but they are, in a way, they're the opposite. They are very isolated. They are sort of separated from the wider world around them. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on the pain of grief in here. They're quite bleak in parts. Um, I don't know. I also felt in a way, and this is maybe something we could talk about more generally with short stories, that by getting to the end of Catherine Lace, I thought the writing was wonderful, but I almost wished I hadn't read the whole thing in one go. Um, and I always tend to read short story collections in one go. I read hmm. them like they're a solid book. I actually never do. Well, this is what I was interested in wondering, because I know some people don't. And I think there's something to be said about dipping in and out of a collection and Absolutely. not having to have it. Because by the end of this, although the writing was wonderful and... Um, I, I do think it's a great book. I found myself almost a bit too saturated by mm. similar story or even, you know, similar sort of topics, similar um, ways of approaching things. And I wished maybe I'd had a bit more time between them and could think about them as separate pieces. I, I like reading a short story and then walking away from it and kind of living with it for a while and then reading the next one, dipping in and out yeah. and letting that world that each short story creates yeah. kind of stay with me. Um, because it's very interesting how very short stories, or not so short stories, uh, but sto short stories in general, have that ability to conjure up a world out of nothing. And it's suddenly there and it's so complete and it's fully present mm. and then it's over. But you still sense it. You still want to be in it. So yeah. I don't want to lose that feeling. So I kind of wait. I think you're sensible because I think that in reading, I mean, not always, maybe the next book we, we talk about will give you a slightly opposite version mm. of this but I do think with these maybe with the May Lantan and also with the definitely with the Catherine Lacey that if I had had a little bit of time between some of the stories I think they might have resonated some of them might have resonated with me slightly more than they did but that's a lesson learned for short story reading in the future and finally and finally well this is a slightly different to that then because my final pick is a wonderful collection called Heads of the Coloured People by Nafisa Thompson Spires and it's published it was published in August by Chatter and Windus. And it's, I think this book has been one of my highlights of the year. It's 
I think it's a really, really accomplished debut collection. I'd like to say this book is definitely my pick of this month. So Excellent. Heads of Coloured People, short story uh, collection by Nafisa Thompson Spires, published by Chateau. My personal pick, because I think it's astonishing. Yeah. It is hilarious. Yes, it, it is. In parts. It is so funny that I was screaming with laughter. My family asked me to stop or remove myself <laughs> from, you know, a common area. And then all of a sudden I was really crying very, and, and, and feeling very sad. Mm. And and I was, throughout it all, I was admiring her ability to write about very serious topics mm. and primarily, obviously, about the topic of race in contemporary America. Mm. Um, but with such a light touch, she won't be coming to the UK around this time of publication. Otherwise, I think both you and I would love to interview her. Absolutely. What would you like to ask her? I think I would want to ask her, like, in a way, why stories and why not a kind of larger novel? What was it about the shorter form that attracted you? Um, and what she thinks that she kind of got out of it in a way, you know, is it the same things that I felt as the reader that I got out of it, that she got as writing these pieces? Interesting. Um, other than that, I'd need a bit more time to prepare, I think. <laughs> I, would, I would probably ask her which of these characters would inspire her to go on and maybe write a novel about them. That's interesting because I wonder, I always, I don't know, whether I wonder if they exist as short story characters to her or whether she can, she mm. would feel that she would be able to bring. But then, you know, it's so fascinating because that, the, like the girl who appears in three short stories, yeah. I mean, there's enough material within this, you know, it's a, she's written a novella about her anyway. This mm. very complex, very kind of, you know, three-dimensional character that we see from, you know, in this first story that's told by letters sent between her mother and this other mother at the school. They're both tiger mothers yeah. at this school. Their two daughters are the two black children there and they're sort of competing for superiority or, you know, to, to show off their own... Um, they're boasting about how intelligent their children yes. are in the way that all tiger mothers like to do. And how damaged the other child is. Exactly. And trying to kind of constantly get this one-upness between them. And then, you know, and in that, is it's very funny and it's hilarious. Then you get this portrait of the children through their parents and you obviously don't see them in their own eyes. And then you meet this girl in the next story in the collection as a um, as a woman in her 30s who is who has suffered so much pain and trauma mm. throughout her life and is sort of managing, but is also not managing on, on so many levels. And you get to see what this woman has grown up to be, what this child has grown up to be. And then in the next story, she takes you back to the yeah. teenage years. And again, I think this is a kind of masterstroke of being yeah. able to move the history around like mm. that, that she didn't do it chronologically. Mm -hmm. Because then in this final, you know, of the third of the three stories, you get to see this this sort of one incident that happened to her daughter, the daughter as a teenager, that made her start reassessing her own sort of um, identity as a black woman and how that plays out as well. And I, do, I don't know, I just thought it was so clever, you know? I would also uh, love to ask her about the title, Heads of the Coloured People. Yes. Um, what do you know about the book that this refers to? Well, I think she gives, she does give, um, she talks about it at the end in a kind of note at the end of the text. And as far as I've gathered from that, it is taken from sketches that were written in the mid-19th century by a man called James McCoon Smith, who was the first African-American um, physician to hold a medical degree, which I found out that he actually got, I think, at the University of Edinburgh because hmm. he wasn't able to be awarded one in America at that time. Um, and I think she says in that, um, in the note at the end, she said that Smith's pieces um, narrate black life from the mundane to the obscure and they span the didactic to the macabre. Um, and I think that sort of sums up exactly what she's doing here, basically. She's exactly. giving, you know, she's, she's showing black life across you know, the myriad kind of um, experiences, experiences yeah. that make up what we often term the black experience. And I think also a key word here is sketches. Yes. Because she, you know, these stories are sketches. And in one of them, she she talks about sketches being done as a drawing, mm. but also um, in words. Yes. And the way she sketches, but actually paints mm. um, these lives. It's very words. visual. It's incredibly so visual. visual. Yeah. So visual, so contemporary. And it's just so, I mean, the, you know, in another way, it's very obvious, but, you know, heads come up in these stories again and again. You know, there's from whether it's to do with um, heads in terms of, you know, power struggles, whether it's to do with actual head injuries, whether it's to do, you know, they just, it's just clever, but again, not in a sort of, 
not in a way that bangs you over the head with it. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, subtly clever. Exactly. Thank you, Uzi. This, this has been a really interesting conversation about stories, about all different types of stories, new types of stories, uh, our love and passion for short stories. And I hope you enjoyed it. Very much. Thank you. Thank you. It is no accident that we've been talking about short stories with such excitement on this podcast. It is because we are about to announce our very own short story competition. And this is the first time it is mentioned anywhere. So listen carefully. Love Reading is thrilled to announce the launch of the Very Short Story Award 2019. We invite submissions of stories between 600 and 1,000 words in length written in English, in any genre. We are accepting entries from overseas as well as the UK. This is an inclusive award. We ask for just one entry per author. We accept stories from both unpublished and published authors, but only unpublished stories are eligible for entry. We are looking for exciting, stimulating, original and beautifully written stories that leave a powerful impression on the reader. Our team of five expert judges will read the stories blind when choosing their 10 shortlisted stories, and this will be complemented by a People's Choice vote, a unique opportunity for Love Reading members to vote for their favorite story from the shortlist. The winning story will be read by a professional actor on the Love Reading podcast and published on the Love Reading website. Our judges are Liz Robinson, Love Reading Reviews Editor, Maxim Jakubowski, author, translator, editor, Alison Flood, literary journalist, Preti Tanija, novelist, and Elena Lapin, author, editor, and Love Reading podcast host. The deadline for submissions will be 31st October 2018. The shortlist of 10 stories will be announced in January 2019 and the winning story in February 2019. Please see our forthcoming posts and TNCs for all details. Please note, incomplete entry forms and short stories not submitted in accordance with the entry instructions will not be eligible for consideration. Thank you. Hello, my name is Helen Cullen and my debut novel, The Last Letters of William Wolfe, will be published by Penguin. Lost letters have only one hope for survival. If they are caught between two worlds, with an unclear destination and no address of sender, the lucky ones are redirected to the dead letters depot in East London for a final chance of redemption. Inside the damp, rising walls of a converted tea factory, letter detectives spend their days solving mysteries. Missing postcodes, illegible handwriting, rain-smudged ink, lost address labels, torn packages, forgotten street names. They are all culprits in the occurrence of missed birthdays, unknown test results, bruised hearts, unaccepted invitations, silenced confessions, unpaid bills and unanswered prayers. Instead of longed for missives, disappointment floods postboxes from Land's End to Dunnet Head. Hope fades a little more every day when doorbells don't chime and doormats don't thud. Helen Kahn, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. You have written a beautiful debut, Lost Letters of William Wolfe. And I have to tell you, even before I read a single word, I was sold on it because the idea of someone being a letter detective is just fascinating to me. Your book is full of these lost, forgotten letters. How did this idea come to you to write a novel about that? I think um, the whole concept for the novel came to me in stages. The very first thing I had was the line from the poem that's the epigraph to the novel, the John Donne poem, More Than Kisses, Letters Mingle Souls. And I think that was the springboard for me into thinking about creating a novel around letters and letter writing and the lost art of letter writing and the power that letters had. And from there, I began thinking about if it would be possible to fall in love with someone purely based on the letters that they'd written if you'd never met them. And if you did, would the person you ultimately met in real life live up to your expectations? Would the letters have shown a, a more truthful or less truthful version of themselves when you met them in reality? Because I think you do write letters from a different place in your psyche than you do any other kinds of correspondence or 
and you say things differently than you would speaking to someone in person or on the telephone or in any other medium. Um, So had the woman who writes the letters first, had a woman writing to her great love whom she'd never met. And um, then I needed someone to find the letters. So I started thinking about who would this be? What kind of world would they live in where they would find letters a woman had written to someone she'd never met? How would they get into their hands? Let me stop you right there. Yeah. Her great love, whom Mm. she's never met. Mm. Explain that. Well, I think Winter, one of the protagonists in the novel who's writing these letters, as a way of working out her own ideas around love and around her own expectations from what she can expect from love, starts writing letters to a fictionalised version in her mind of who that person will be. And through her letters, she works out her own ideas around love, around what she wants from a relationship and who ultimately she wants to build a future with. And I think she writes the letters without really any expectation of someone finding them, but more like messages in a bottle that she sends out into the ether. So your main character is William Wolfe, who is the letter detective who becomes, I can say, obsessed with um, these letters. Um, But the other characters in the novel are the other letter writers, all the letters that he collects, that he finds in the process of working in his job in the Lost Letters Depot. Each letter, each single letter that you wrote there basically creates a whole new character. How much fun did you have creating well, these I'm, I'm invisible so glad characters? you think that they all have a little life of their own. Mm. Um, I think it was the greatest gift I could possibly have given myself as a writer to put this story inside the Dead Letters Depot. Because as you know, in the depot, there could be a letter from anyone to anyone about anything. So it just really allowed me to run wild in my imagination for where these letters could come from and who might be writing them. Um, So just as I was going about my life in London, anything that inspired me throughout the day, I could then bring back to the novel and work its way into these little kind of little stories, um, you know, that became at the heart of the letters. These are fantastic stories. And uh, each one is like a mini novel in itself, (laughs) not even a story, but potentially like a mini novel. I absolutely love them. But back to your main character, William Wolfe and his wife, Claire. Um, I suppose one could say that this novel is really about their marriage and about the love that grew between them and that and then was perhaps lost or not. Um, how is their marriage affected by his job? Well, I suppose there's a few things going on. His marriage really came out of the question I asked myself about why would this man who has worked as a letter detective for 13 years and had millions of letters across his desk suddenly become fixated on this woman and this question about, you know, what love was and and what love meant to him in his life. So I needed to create a motivation that was causing him to go in search for this. You know, there had to be something missing. And from there, working backwards, then I discovered as I wrote the novel that he had this marriage to Claire. You know, they had been fallen in love very young when they were in university and been together for a long time. And he really missed that relationship they'd had at the beginning, you know, when they had first fallen in love and when they were completely connected, but they had grown apart. So I think his quest for winter is as much a quest for his original love with Claire. And I think I really wanted to examine that juxtaposition that often exists between the way romantic love is portrayed in the media and in arts and in music, and then the pragmatic reality of sustaining a relationship over a long period of time. And wonder if someone really starts pining for that exciting connection that can happen at the beginning of a relationship with someone, does that inevitably mean if they want that, that it has to be found elsewhere? Or could you revive that in your relationship if you just started communicating differently or looked at things in a different way. So I had sort of lots of things mixed up in their marriage that was running kind of parallel to his quest to find winter. William's work finds its way into their lives in a very interesting way, I found. You know, you think as a reader, you think, what is he doing? He's just fantasizing. But actually, there's something else at play. And that is that In both his case and in his wife's case, they both have an artistic previous life, which they gave up or lost. So Claire is now a successful lawyer, but she was once an artist or wanted to be an artist. She buried that inside herself. William was supposed to become a novelist, 
and even had a contract to write a book, but was blocked and couldn't do it. So his writing career is dead. And her loss of her art and his loss of his writing, I think these two things play a huge role in their mutual disappointment. And so these letters, when they come in, they are so artistic, they are so full of other dimensions that they inspire them. Was that the idea? So yes, definitely. I think it, it was something I was really interested in, in exploring this idea of second chances in life. And if you could revive something that you had initially been passionate about when you were younger, if that didn't necessarily become your career, but it was still kind of niggling at you, is that something that you could return to and ultimately get satisfaction from? And I think that a big part of their disappointment with each other and with their marriage is that the two people that they'd met, that had met when they were in university, that they imagined they were going to be 10 years on, just hadn't materialised. And at one point, Claire asks, if they met now as adults for the first time, would they even be friends, let alone lovers, let alone people who were married to each other? So I did think a lot about second chances. And I think the depot, especially for Claire, really became very symbolic of of their disappointment because she sees him going into work there every day and she's so frustrated that in her mind he has settled for this instead of pursuing the thing that he wanted the most. So I think it, it has become a, a really big element of their life, you know, the depot, and she feels that that is keeping him away from what he wanted to do. But actually, I think he gets a lot of inspiration from the depot and I think it really inspires him. And earlier on in the novel, we see that you know, the depot really exposes him to this myriad of extraordinary stories that happen in ordinary people's lives. And for a writer, a that's so much material. Place. Absolutely. And it feels like such a magical place, the way you describe the various rooms there and the topics and how it's all divided into sections according to what is found in the letters. It's um, it, it doesn't feel really real or mundane at all. Mm. It feels quite mystical almost. Mm. Um, and I think that was something I that was very important to me when I created the Dead Letters Depot. I really wanted the environment of the book to be somewhere where magic and reality could collide, because I think that's probably at the heart of all relationships. There's a little bit of kind of magical faith or leap of faith that you have to take in order to have a relationship with somebody. But then this awfully pragmatic reality kicks then of trying to sustain that. And I think that the depot for me really became a symbol of that struggle in a relationship where you're trying to combine those two things. So I love the way these letters bring the inside, you know, the internal emotional uh, world out into the open and how playful it is and how profound, really. So Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. It's really wonderful to hear that. Lovely, lovely <laughs> debut novel. Mm. Thank, thank you for appearing on our podcast. We were delighted to have you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. My name is Fatma Farheen Mirza, and I am reading an excerpt from A Place for Us. Every time Amira came to him with news about a suitor, he grew quiet, regardless of whether she was complaining or joking or describing the disorder that ensued when she said no. When they first began meeting regularly, deepening the way they felt about each other, Amar promised her he would come to her doorstep when he had made himself into the kind of man her father would seek for her. I will do it the right way, he told her. It will be right for you, for us, and they won't suspect that we have loved each other. She sometimes felt that they had made a mistake, rushing forward into their secret the way they had, that it would have been better not to sin, not to deceive, and that God might have looked kindly upon them if they kept him and their parents in mind and would have bestowed upon them a good chismat, a happy destiny. She was betraying her parents by being loyal to him, risking their dishonor by joining him here. But he assured her it would all be made right, wanting only to have as much time with her as he could. She looked at him with an expression of such certainty, such belief, even though he was not sure he could pull it off, go through community college, transfer to a good school, force himself to study something he did not want to and did not know if he could do well at get a promising and respectable job. But he would try, because it would be his best chance at winning her parents over, because then it would mean he had not broken his promise to her. 
I don't know how others do it, she was saying now. I would never want to get married like that. To someone who just saw a picture of me and sent a proposal, who has already made his decision, and it doesn't matter what I do or don't do, what I say or don't say, he's just going to accept it. I want it to be me because of me. Me because of what I have said and done and thought. I want it to be him not because of his job or good family, but because of how he thinks about the world, how he moves through it, and how we feel about each other. Amira because of how she thought. Amira because she was capable of being wildly goofy one moment and poised the next, and he could never figure out how she moved from one self to the other so effortlessly. Amira because no room was lit until she entered it. Amira because if it would not be Amira, it would be no one. She had the aura and confidence of someone who was so beloved by all who knew her that it emanated from her even when she was alone, and any stranger who came across her could not help falling under a spell she had no awareness of casting. Fatima Farheen Mirza, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. We are very, very happy to have you here. Uh, you come all the way from New York or California? New York, New yes. York. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You are 27 years old, but you actually began writing this at the age of 18. Yes. How, how did that happen? So I started writing the novel when I was 18. I was an undergraduate at UC Riverside. I was studying pre-med at the time. Um, and I was taking creative writing classes because I always loved writing. And I always... Um, yeah, I wanted to honor that part of me. And so I was taking creative writing classes, but I never thought that I would change my major. I never thought that it was something that I could or would devote myself to. But after, in one of my classes, I began writing this family story. And when, after a while, when the characters became real to me, and because of the encouragement of one of my teachers in particular, Charmaine Craig, I decided that I, I did want to devote myself to this family story, that it, it was my goal to do justice to their lives, to their consciousness. And so that's when I changed my major and started the path of writing it. But it was very different when I first began it. Of course. But that first scene that you imagined, was it the wedding? It was, yes. The first scene was at the wedding. Um, it was a family. They're gathered and they're about to take the photograph. It's the eldest daughter's wedding. And they're looking out at the crowd of everyone who's also, who's gathered to come to the wedding. And they're looking out and seeing, where's our son? Is he going to make it to this photograph in time? So that was the first image that came to me. And I really... It, it was one that made me very curious. I There were so many questions that I could ask myself in that moment. Who is the son who's missing? Why would he not be present at his sister's wedding? Where is he instead? And also, what are all of the tiny decisions that each family member made in the past, whether it was when the kids were young or not even born yet, that have brought them to this place? The marriage between Layla and Rafiq, um you choose not to show uh, their yes. moments of intimacy, so you don't yes. really know what their physical relationship is, right. um, which actually by excluding it in an almost Victorian way, um, you are making the reader think more about mm -hmm. what is going on there emotionally. To not include the physical um, part of the relationship was a very intentional choice on my part because I wanted each scene you know, even though they're about different things, even though it could be Layla in the library or it could be Layla in her garden or, um, you know, Amar in school or Hadia in Sunday school, I wanted that each of them to be facing the same question, to be trying to uncover the same, to be trying to search for the same answer, which is one that asks, what kind of a mother was I? What kind of a sister was I? What kind of a son was I? And then in Rafiq's perspective, what kind of a father was I? And how how did I do the best with what I was given? What were the moments that I made a mistake with my son that caused him to run away one day? There are so many scenes that explore Layla observing Rafiq as a father. But to her, the question is, why did our family fall apart? And so when she's entering those scenes where she's making um, seri for her children during Ramadan and she's pulling down a plate for Amar and Rafiq is the one who says, you know, he doesn't need to fast today. 
she's mm-hmm. observing that moment. That's that's exists in the novel because in that instance we see how one on one hand Rafiq is denying his son what he wants. He wants to fast that day, but then on the other hand he's saying um, it's too, too hot mm-hmm. and he's too young and he's still going to play basketball. Mm-hmm. He's still going to want to play basketball. And Layla in that moment is touched by love for him and surprised by him. And so that's why that scene exists. I love the way you are actually in awe of your characters <laughs> as if, uh, you know, as if they have a life of their own, which they do. I, I, I believe that. I think in all fiction, in all yeah. good fiction, characters have a life, do have a life of their own, which you kind of have to respect and they have their own truth. Yeah. And if you don't capture that truth, then you failed as a novelist. Right. Um, but you to have me, yeah, to me, that was always my orientation around mm-hmm. them. I, I felt that I was working in service of them. And I felt that my goal for them was to do justice to their lives, to, to capture their consciousness and their narrative as they would tell it. I didn't want to in, impose my judgments on Layla. I didn't want to impose my limited view on, on Hadia. I wanted to, um, for example, I would have a when we were talking about Layla and Rafiq's marriage, there are things about their marriage that I, as Fatima, would struggle with if it was my own marriage. But I wanted to really imagine what is it like for Layla? And so what are the things that she does struggle with? And what are the things that she finds intense joy in and so much love for her husband? And um, and so I always felt that my goal was that to to honor their minds as they exist and I always it felt like you know maybe it's because I entered their life at different memories and or different moments in time and I no matter what moment I was entering them I encountered something in that moment that felt like a piece in a jigsaw puzzle that unlocked a, a psychological key of how Amar was or how Hadia was that that made sense that you know does that make yes, sense no, absolutely and so uh, it felt like i was i was like in the dark but i was encountering them as they were i would like to mention this other family um that plays a big role in the book the ali family mm-hmm. um so her first love Hadja's first love was the eldest son the Abbas. eldest Ali boy Abbas Ali, yeah and um was that family conceived as a kind of counterpoint I never conceived of them as a counterpoint. To me, I knew that Amar falls in love with Amira Ali. And I knew that Amira Ali is the youngest daughter of these four. And she has three older brothers. It's lovely how they meet when she's a baby. A baby, yeah. Um, yeah, I really was interested in just kind of laying out all these moments as if they are the only moment that exists because they're in present tense. and it's, um, But it's a fully imagined past section and I wanted to I loved thinking of these moments as the ones that exist in all of our lives but because we are incapable of carrying each moment that we go through as fully from one to the next this idea that these are moments that perhaps these characters have actually forgotten that never even made it way into their life but we can trace the way that these they overlap and the way that Amar as a baby as a child, you know, young young baby sees Amira Lee as a baby, and they have this sweet relationship at that very very early age. Of course, he's she not going to remember him, that. Doesn't she? she scratches him, and he allows her to. And he knows, even in that moment, even though he's a child, don't hurt her back. Um, and so, I loved encountering that that moment and just thinking. Oh my God, Amar might forget this. Amira might forget this. But somewhere in his subconsciousness, the truth that mm. that exists, somewhere maybe he remembers the smell or maybe something has carried in him that allows him then at 17 to see her and think, I love her. Well, th- there's this sentence which I'd like to quote. Yes. Um, loving Amira was not just loving a young woman. It was loving a whole world. Let's talk about that. A whole world. Yeah. Is she... What is her world? Is she from a different world to his? No, that's the actual, the sentence continues on. She was of the same world he had been born into, but had only ever felt himself outside of. And Mm. sitting by her was the closest he came to feeling harmony with his own home. 
So Amira Ali is in the same community that their their family is in. Um, their you know South Asian community, Indian Pakistani families that have immigrated to the United States. You share the same faith, and you express that faith through these outward markers, outward rituals, and and practices, and ways of being. And so Amar, he kind of struggles with that, in a way that he senses that his sisters don't, and so that causes a great loneliness in him. That's what love can do, right? When when somebody loves you, it's a way of the message that it sends to you is that I accept you. I see you, I know you, and I'm not repelled by you. In fact, I'm drawn towards you for the very things that maybe you are worried that others are repelled by. Or, And so what Amar experiences with Amira is a particular kind of love. Because say he were to fall in love with a girl from his high school who who wasn't from the community, then of course he would feel the same joys of attraction, of, of love. But the fact that Amira, having been raised in the same kind of community as him, having the same conception of God um, that Amar has been given, that he kind of fears that, you know, perhaps I'll even be rejected by my father's God because of the ways that I sin. But to have him be able to be himself with Amira and she still sits by him and she wants to see him and she doesn't cast him away, that's a way for him to feel I am at home in the home I've been born into. And she's a very free spirit, which is interesting because Amar appears to be the free spirit. He is the rebel. But actually, the chances that she takes and the things yes. that she does um, are uh, mind-blowing. Um, you it, mean how she walks up to him, mm, how she leaves a note and on And how she pillow. leaves a note on his yes. pillowcase. I yeah, mean, that is, I think for him, he recognizes something yeah. of himself in her. He, he recognizes that, you know, yeah, he admires that in her. And I think that Amira, you know, at first she is the one who's the free spirit. But I think as the novel progresses, we see the ways that she has allowed herself to be limited by the expectations that others have of her in a way that Amar eventually, perhaps selfishly, uh, depending on how you see it, doesn't. Mm. This novel um, was chosen by Sarah Jessica Parker yes. for her imprint. And this, I, I believe, is the first novel that she has chosen. How was that for you? Honestly, I can't imagine another home for the book. I can't imagine hands I trust more than Sarah Jessica's. She's been so incredible this entire year that we've been working together as a person as a like a writer that's been a joy just to have hear her thoughts and this book is going to be the first since imprint it's been so much more meaningful of an experience than i could have ever imagined fatima farheen mirza thank you very very much for this wonderful conversation thank and you for so much i to love reading uk i've enjoyed it so much thank you thank you decisions decisions this is where I, as an author and uh, editor, help you solve dilemmas, problems, or answer questions regarding your own writing. Our question today comes from a reader called Rubella, and she asks very simply, how do I write convincingly fiction about sex? Well, my reply would be, writing about sex is like writing about anything else. It can be either good writing or bad writing, Sex in particular is is quite difficult to write about, and that's why there is a bad sex award, because good sex writing is um, rare, actually. And Rabilla, I would recommend that you read a lot and find those passages in your favorite novels that deal with sex. And if you find them convincing and good, think about why that is. And also find the bad ones, find the ones that make you cringe, find the ones that don't sound um, real, genuine, maybe passages that make assumptions about uh, how women feel that you um, don't agree with as a female writer. And then just do it your own way. Do it, approach it in exactly the same way as you would approach writing about anything else. And then listen back to it. And ask yourself, did this scene really add something to my treatment of this particular character? Did it add anything to the story? If it didn't, 
maybe doesn't even belong there. But if it did, then make it as good as the rest of your writing. And I'm sure you'll be happy with that. Good luck. Family secrets and other stories, our conversations today showed us how family life can inspire the writing of fiction in three superb debut novels, a breathtaking reimagining of the King Lear play as a family feud set in contemporary India comes alive in Preti Tanija's award-winning novel, We That Are Young. Helen Cullen explores the intersection between magic and reality in the romantically troubled life of a letter detective in her wonderfully imaginative novel, The Lost Letters of William Wolfe. And in Fatima Farheen Mirza's deeply reflective and moving debut, A Place for Us, a Pakistani immigrant family in America tries to understand what happened to their rebellious son. Lucy Skull's interesting book post brought us three collections of short stories this time, Things to Make and Break by Mainland Tan, Certain American States by Catherine Lacey, and Heads of the Colored People by Nafisa Thompson Spires. This last book of stories also happens to be my own pick of the month for its sheer emotional scope, power, originality, freedom of spirit, and humor. I hope you've been inspired by all this talk about short stories to enter our competition. If you missed the official announcement earlier on the podcast, here's a quick recap. We are looking for a very short story, up to a thousand words, written in English, in any genre. Our judges will be joined by the Love Reading community in selecting the winner. And the winning story will be read by a professional actor right here on our podcast. Please check our website for all the details. We are really looking forward to reading your submissions. This podcast was produced by Alex Raymond with original music composed by Alex Raymond. We would like to thank our guests, Preti Tanija, Helen Cullen, Fatima Farin Mirza, and Lucy Scholes. Please be in touch with us on Twitter or email us at podcast at lovereading.co.uk. We love your feedback and suggestions. I'm Elena Lappin. Thank you for listening.